Hurting Her Story is proudly sponsored by the Florida Cattlemen's Foundation. The Florida Cattlemen's Foundation is dedicated to sustaining a viable ranching industry in Florida through the development of future leaders. The Foundation Board is committed to raising and distributing funds for a wide variety of projects in the areas of research in the cattle industry, educational programs, leadership development programs, and the heritage and historical projects such as the ranching exhibit housed at the Florida State Fair and their signature event of the Florida Ranch Rodeo State Finals and Heritage Festival. Hurting Her Story is also proudly sponsored by Dale and Beth Carlton and family. We thank them for their support and commitment to a sustainable Florida by investing in the future generation. We'd like to welcome our very first guest on the podcast. Dr. Sandra Tembrook is a state extension horse specialist and associate professor in the Department of Animal Sciences at the University of Florida. She was also recently honored as Florida's 2023 Woman of the Year in Agriculture. Dr. Tembrook and I, well, she was actually one of my professors at the University of Florida, and I got to spend a lot of time with her actually through the Block and Rado Club because she was one of our advisors. So welcome, Dr. T. Thank you so much. It's a big honor to be the first, and it's kind of a little bit scary, so I hope I'm up for the challenge. Well, we're glad to have you here. Can you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got involved in ag, and why you decided to pursue academia? Yeah, that's a, that's a big, long question. I'll try to sum up. You know, I do have a PhD, which we Doctor of Philosophy, so I will try not to philosophize too much today. Um, I'm originally from South Carolina. My father was in the Air Force, um, so we moved all around, mostly the East Coast, Virginia, North and South Carolina, Georgia, but we also lived in Hawaii. That's where my youngest brother was born, and we lived in Japan when I was in uh, middle school. Wow. Uh, my, my father's family was never involved in agriculture, but my mother left home at 13 and moved in with a foster family that had like six kids and they were very much like her brothers and sisters. And so she, they had dairy cattle and row crops. So typical row crops in South Carolina, soybeans, corn, cotton, some tobacco, but, but they were also dairy farmers. So in some ways she felt like a burden to them. She and my father had been dating a long time and it was fairly normal in the day to get married really young. And she married my dad when she was 15, quit school in the 10th grade. And um, he later joined the Air Force about 13 months after she got married. She had my brother. And then less than two years later, she had me. And then 13 months after that, she had my sister. And then my baby brother four years later. So when I think about compare my mother's life as a young woman to mine, when she's 21 years old, well, let's see, 22 years old, she had four children. So, and I I waited till I was 30 to get married and um, not because I didn't fall in love multiple times with some really good guys. I just wasn't ready to get married yet. I wanted to do some things different. And I guess the big difference in my mom's generation and my generation is women, when she was coming through high school, didn't have as many choices. When I was coming through high school, trying to decide on college and potential careers and long-term relationships, I, I, I sometimes said, I, we have too many choices because I want to do everything. You know, there's so many things you want to do. And so we moved around a lot. But when I was in the eighth grade, my mother and father split up. My dad went to Korea and we moved back to South Carolina. So we lived in the country 
rented an old farmhouse. So again, I was surrounded by a row crop, had a small sow operation right next door from our landlord's place. The first two guys I dated, I dated for a long time and both of them were farmers. And so um, just in that environment, the first guy I ever dated, I worked in tobacco for his dad and I took tobacco off the stick for a cent and a half a stick. So I was in a bar (laughs) all day long, you know, taking tobacco off the sticks. But so I was kind of outside looking in. I was never personally, we didn't earn any of our living in, in agriculture but I was surrounded by it and I loved it. And I envied those kids that were born to agriculture and mm-hmm. were going to, and at least had the opportunity to be the next generation. A lot of them left and did something different, but they had that opportunity. Right. That's how it got started. So, okay. So then you went on to Clemson, right? Right. So while I was in, um, and well, I did go to Clemson. I was trying to decide between University of South Carolina and Clemson. And my mother was a Tupperware dealer. My father lived in Korea and sent us whatever child support he decided. And so we didn't have a lot of money. I just, um, but I never felt poor. But I, I mentioned that only because I worked a lot. And so I think for me, that was actually an advantage because I had a wide variety of sources of income over the course of junior high through college. I don't remember a summer that I didn't work. You know, I worked in tobacco. I, I worked as a tasty twirl, making ice cream cones and filling orders of fries and burgers. I worked as, at a couple of restaurants for a couple of years during summers. And waitressing is the hardest work in the world, I'm pretty sure. When I went to Clayson, I, I was qualified for work study, so it was easy to get jobs there. Mm. I was a resident assistant in the dorm. I worked in a lab washing glassware. And my dream job... I got a job at the sheep and horse unit my junior year. And so on the fall, it was the breeding season. We did mostly work with the ewes, breeding sheep, clearing the pastures, and then the spring, getting the lambing stuff ready. But in the springtime, we also got to break the two-year-olds. And so most of my really good experience with young horses was working in that unit. So we would we would get them started, and then we'd head to the woods, and we'd ride them in the woods. And Clemson has a beautiful campus with, uh, we're on Lake Hartwell, and um, streams everywhere. So you're riding horses through planted pine, up and down stream banks, and really a neat way to put a good start on a young horse. Mm-hmm. During the summers, every summer while I was an undergrad, I worked at Camp Bob Cooper, which is a 4-H camp. Mm-hmm. And I had been in 4-H um, in a horse club, um, my sister and I both had horses that were given to us. We couldn't afford one, but I worked at a um, drugstore after school, and any night I didn't have a basketball game to make enough money to buy the horse feed. So anything we did, we had to earn the money ourselves. So I did have a love of horses, as did my sister. And uh, so working at the Sheep and Horse Unit was a great opportunity for me to get some farm experience and then working at camp is where I really got interested in extension work. Like almost every animal science student, I was thinking about applying to veterinary school. So I was in Block and Bridal Club. I was in the Pre-Vet Club, Alpha Zeta, Blue Key. I was very engaged in what was going on, but decided my junior year that I'd rather go to grad school and pursue extension work because I really like the connection that I saw with agents and 4-H kids when at camp, and I I wanted to be a part of that. And 
also saw the trouble. My my oldest brother left school in the 11th grade and pursued other things. And I saw the trouble that comes in kids' lives when they don't have positive things to do with their time. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I felt like 4-H was one of those things. I didn't get involved in FFA just because we didn't have one at our school. I think I probably would have done that had it been an opportunity. But just, even though my mom was a single mom, there were always some amazing people in my life that helped provide us with opportun- us being um, one of four children, mm-hmm. helped us have opportunities for things that what you would say normal kids at the time had opportunities for. Yeah. So when you decided to pursue Extension, did you know that you really enjoyed teaching I didn't really. I knew that to be competitive, so I graduated undergrad in 1979. I felt like if I wanted to be a county agent, you know, I wasn't raised on a farm. I felt really underqualified to tell a farmer how to best make decisions on how to be profitable because I'd never raised animals or row crops for a living. So I felt like to be competitive with the men that were applying for agent jobs. I should go to grad school. So I pursued grad school, and there's a whole long story of how I got this way, that way. I was supposed to go to LSU, but I ended up at Texas Mm A&M, and um, during my master's program, I was on a teaching assistantship, and I loved it. Mm -hmm. And so when I was almost done with my thesis, I started talking to them about staying for a Ph.D., I also knew that my state horse specialist back in South Carolina was applying for department chair jobs, and I was thinking, oh, yeah. This must be a Godwink. He's going to get another job. I'm going to get my PhD. I'm going to slide right in and go back to Clemson where I was the happiest in in my whole life. Yeah. That never happened, but I did get the PhD and I did end up as a state extension livestock specialist to work with youth, a job that I didn't know existed when I started grad school. Mm -hmm. Now, was that in North Carolina? Was it here? No. My first job out of college, out of grad school was... Roger West was the chairman of the Department of Animal Science. Uh, Enrollment in animal science at the time was not great. You know, a few hundred, like less than 300. I don't remember the exact number, maybe around 240. That was a nationwide problem, I think. And so the whole department decided, we what can we do to increase enrollment in our department? And they decided they would come up with this position where a person would come and work with youth involved in livestock across beef, cattle, sheep, hogs, and horses. And all the things that the other faculty didn't really want to do because it was youth-oriented, we would do it. And uh, the assumption that the 4-H department could and would do those things was not working out because 4-H faculty are trained in family, youth, and community sciences, not animal science. So they put a position together, 80% extension, youth, livestock, 20% you had a choice between extension or teaching. They advertised it. They interviewed one of my best friends from school, Ron Gill, and a lady that's now at Kentucky. They offered it to the lady, and I will fess up, there was pressure for um, affirmative action to get more women in animal science. So if they could find a qualified woman, that was a good thing. Yeah. But she turned it down. Ron Gill was offered the position and he got a job in Texas. He's from Texas. It's hard to get folks to leave Texas when that's the roots. Yeah. Or especially if it's his wife's roots and mama didn't want to go. Yeah. So rather than um, continue down the list, they re-advertised it. When I saw the job description, I was like, 
wow, that is not just a job. That is the job. That is the job description I would have put together if I knew such a position existed, but I didn't know it existed and it didn't. Yeah. Exactly a year later, they re-advertised. I was close enough to finishing that I applied, interviewed, and they also interviewed a young man. I was offered the position. And uh, when Roger West called me aside, he, he offered me the job. And I had a, I had a potential job in Connecticut, but who would want to work in Connecticut? Florida, Connecticut, yeah. They might agree with So I told them, one of the things that was a really big deal to me at the time was, if I'm the best candidate for the job, I want the job. But if you're hiring me because I'm a woman, please offer it to someone else, because that is not, I don't want to ride on that little trail. So um, he assured me that I was the best candidate, and I started work, and it was it was great. Roger West was an amazing boss. Mm-hmm. No one had ever done the job before, so every day was a new day. No two days were alike. Yeah, but um, I chose extension and teaching. So you had that conversation with him where you were like, "Only hire me if I'm qualified." That's right, be- and I deserve it. Not yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you want to be the best choice, not yeah. I, I didn't no. want to. I didn't want to fill a quota. Yeah, I would tell you for the, the first two years of my job, I was put on every committee you can imagine for all across IFAS and in the department because. I approached one of the, well, I was a member of Christian Faculty Fellowship, and they kept wanting me to sit at the head table. And I'm like, why am I doing this? And they said, well, we just really don't want to give people the impression we're a bunch of old white men. And I said, okay, but it's been all <laughs> to play, and I'll sit at the head table, but please stop doing this just because I'm a woman. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So there was a lot of that. But over time, you know, at the time I was hired, Sandy Lieb was the first female faculty to work in animal science, so she was the real trendsetter. And um, and so her name was Sandy and my name is Sandra. So Mr. Wakeman used to tease me and say that I was the other horsewoman, the other Sandy, because he called both of us Sandy. So and then he'd laugh at his typical <laughs> kind of laugh that he had that people that knew Mr. Wakeman would know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. He, and he was fun. Can you talk a little bit about some of the changes that you've seen since the beginning of your career until now within the agricultural industry? For me personally, I went from 80% extension youth livestock to and 20% teaching. My teaching role grew, so it went to 40. And for decades, I was at 60 extension, 40 teaching, taught a lot of different courses in the department. And I think that's one of my strengths is my versatility, kind of a chameleon. I could, whatever gaps needed to be filled, I would just plug in. And I probably wasn't always the best person at it, but I was willing. And so being willing was a big deal. And so I served in a lot of different capacities. After 17 years as a youth livestock specialist, Tim Marshall had been the uh, department undergrad coordinator for a really long time, maybe eight years. And he was kind of over it and wanted to do some things differently. And he and I worked together all the time on youth programs because he was also the livestock judging team coach. So when we were putting on youth livestock events, he and I were a team. And because my husband's name is Tim and his name is Tim, there were lots of people that knew us for five, six years and thought he was my husband because I talked to my husband, Tim. Not that we were flirty. That's, I mean, maybe it's funny because we, we did because you guys yeah, together because we worked yeah. together, same name. So but anyway, Tim and I got along great. Um, Tim is extremely organized, and everything has to be done three months in advance. I like to get things done ahead of time, but I don't get so puckered up, and 
I've said this to him and, and he said it to me. So invariably in youth programs and working with livestock producers and students and parents, things will go awry. Mm-hmm. And so when things would go awry, Tim Marshall get his panties in a wad and <laughs> just didn't do well. And and he and he'd say, Timbrick, you're gonna have to fix this. And you know, and I, I was really go with the flow. So we were an excellent complement for each other in terms of the way we did business and no egos, just get her done. Yeah. And we're both really super hard workers and show up and no job is below you. And so having the opportunity to work with folks like Tim and Fred Leak and uh, Bill Kunkel, uh, some amazing, some amazing folks in the animal science department really made my first few years good. But Tim took over the food animal part of my job and I went to 100% horse. And Ed Johnson and I shared leadership of adult and youth extension outreach for equine clientele. But to go back to the early years, um, I started work on my 29th birthday as a single female. And um, interesting dynamics. The department was, there was only one other woman. Our enrollment was well, you know, maybe 60, 70% male, the students to 30 to 40% female. But the trend was changing. So I, I don't think I'm the innovator to get the enrollments, which I think we were seeing that trend nationally. But a big part of my job was to get out there. Mr. Wigman would say, you know, well, when I interviewed, he said, can you sift, you know, 100 hogs at a show? Can you sift a bunch of steers? Can you do this and can you do that? And I said, well, First of all, Mr. Wegman, I don't think that's in the job description, but I did judge livestock. I, I am capable of that. And if Roger West, my boss, tells me that's what he wants me to do to execute this job, I'll do it. But And he said, well, it's not about you know how good a sifter you are. It's about being the face of the department, and we need you out there meeting people because kids come to schools when they know the faculty, and we feel like that's an important part of this job. And so that I took that to heart. That's part of the reason I wanted to do the job. And I promise you, if you go judge a show and you're on the microphone and you're explaining why you placed the class the way you did, that's a really teachable moment. Everybody's paying attention. And you can squeeze a little education about the value of having choice steers or having a pig that's too fat and, you know, not going to yield what you'd like it to. So, So the education part that can come with these livestock shows was something I fully embraced. One of the things I did early on, Sid Sumner would bring me to Bartow, and Sid was a great supporter of me and did everything he could to help me as a female in a predominantly men's world. So I'd come in and I'd put on a judging contest, and we'd judge pens of Hereford bulls. And so we'd do some things in the morning relative to their show and sale, and then we'd do a judging contest in the afternoon. So I had some downtime, and all the guys would be in the stands talking and what's your typical day like? And this, you know, just really quizzing me and putting me on the spot. And this particular year I had gotten engaged to um, Tim, my husband. um, And I'd really just gotten back from when we got engaged. We weren't married yet. And so a county agent whose name I won't mention said, so who's going to be the man? Is he coming to Florida or are you going to Texas? I go, well, you know, and bleep the name. Um, <laughs> there ain't no question in my mind who the man is in this relationship. But when I was hired to this position, I promised Roger West I would give him a minimum of two years 
before I would consider going anywhere else. And I keep my word. So um, I can't answer your question the way it was given, but I believe that question tells me more about you than it does about me. <laughs> you always have like those good ones. I didn't think of that till later. I did tell him that later. I was trying to sum up. Yeah. You always come out with some really good one-liners and like it hits you. <laughs> I mean it in all kindness. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Eventually that particular agent did, who was a county director, he eventually did hire a woman to be an agent in his county. So he eventually came around. What gross. Yeah, you planted the seeds first. But I don't know. But this is a, a good segue, I think, to maybe talking about if you were ever faced with a decision to choose between your professional career and having a family. And how how did you find that balance? I don't think a career and being a mom is mutually exclusive. So keep in mind, I was 29 and single when I came to Florida. I actually met my husband Kind of a fun story, but it takes a long time, but we'll just sum it up because God has a sense of humor. We met from that he does. <laughs> we met from a heart attack and hemorrhoids. And if we ever wanna yeah. was neither one of us had those issues, but that's what brought us together. And we met for the first time. We courted, so to speak, over the phone. We got engaged in October and got married January third. So fun story about Fred Leak. Tim and I, I was headed to some national meetings. It's a triennial livestock specialist meeting. It was in Arkansas. So I routed my trip through Dallas on my way to this meeting. At the meeting, I was the only woman there with the exception of the women doing registration. Wow. And so wow. on the way, he asked me to marry him. And I said yes. And then um, I always te- And then I had my trip routed through there on the way back as well because it was his birthday. So I teased him about being the only woman there, I said, you just didn't want me to go there and meet, meet a cowboy and marry someone else. And he said, because he's a Daytona boy originally, but he lived in Dallas-Fort Worth at the time. Mm-hmm. So um, on the way back, we started talking about when could we get married. And, you know, I'd have all the, every single Saturday from January till April had something I was doing for the state. So finding a date was very hard. So we decided we'd just do it January 3rd. And so... Um, he uh, he moved all his stuff to Florida, put it in a storage shed. And I felt very strongly about not living together before we got married. And so um, Frankie Hall was a good friend of mine. And he said that when Tim moved here, he could stay with him until we got married. And so lots of things fell into place. But while I was trying to get, I mean, my mom lived in Saudi Arabia. My dad lived in Korea. My sister lived in Texas. My brother was in um, Kansas City. So everybody's all spread out. My younger brother in South Carolina. So trying to get everybody together in short notice was a lot. So I ordered my invitations, got my dress, got the church. I did everything in in one afternoon, just about. Wow. By myself. Done. (laughs) By myself. So I was frazzled. And I go to see Fred Leake and his wife, Irene, and I say, I just start off. I can do this. <laughs> and Fred takes my hand in his and he starts rubbing my palm. And, and Irene's standing beside him at his elbow and they're going, Sadra, is there any reason why you have to get married on January 3rd? And I said, well, it's because I don't have any Saturdays. <gasps> oh, you guys think I'm pregnant. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> fun story. So yeah, Tim and I got married in January and we were on the road and I'm fortunate to um, have married a man who 
is not he doesn't have a higher degree he's a skilled tradesman and he is not intimidated by what i do but tim is the first person that said christ has to be the center of our relationship that's so that's the, oh my goodness so anyway he's not intimidated by my degree um we each have our own strengths that we bring to the marriage he's got a great voice he was a music major in college and he sings on a praise team. He has a gospel quartet group. So we have our things that we do. But the thing we have in common is our love of and our faith and family. And so being 30 when I got married, we wanted to have a little time together. But we said, okay, let's go two or three years before we start having kids. So I did get pregnant at 32. And my first pregnancy was a miscarriage. And it was during the Florida State Fair during the livestock judging contest. That is insane. So, uh, you know, I share this because women biologically are different and there's stuff that happens, you know. Men do lots of things, but they're never going to gestate and they're never going to lactate, well, without hormonal intervention. So we have that role and you decide if you want to pursue that part of you or not. And I did. So Another Sid Sumner story. I was supposed to go to his county that next week and judge a heifer show or something. And so I had to tell him, uh, so I'm literally in the middle of having this miscarriage, but I don't want to leave the contest. So I tell him that um, I can't come Monday. I've got to have a DNC. And he's like, girl, you go sit in. <laughs> anyway, we made it through the weekend. When, um, the next, um, later that spring, I got pregnant again and had my first child, Ryan, who was a total cuddle bunny, wonderful kid. And um, and then 23 months later, I had Rebecca. And um, my husband says, we're done. We're complete. And Rebecca, when she got old enough, she's like, I want another little sister. So but Ryan and Tim were like, no, no, no. But when I turned 40, I got pregnant. And the boys weren't pleased. <laughs> so Rebecca was just thrilled. And then after about three months, I lost that one. And I was totally flabbergasted because uh, the first miscarriage, I knew that I could get pregnant again. And I, though I grieved, the biologist in me is like, okay, maybe 25% of all pregnancies end up in being lost in the first 20 to 30 days. So being a reproductive physiologist, I logic my way through. It was a real psychological prop for me because I thought, why did God let me get pregnant? Because I should not. I mean, we were being precautious and and then why he let me lose it. So I spent a long time convincing myself for the point in my career, it was time for me to put in my packet to be a full professor. There's just, and my kids are old enough. We're doing camping trips, riding bikes. It's It's all good. And so I really psyched myself out that being pregnant was not a good thing and but I still never this little in the back of my head why did I get pregnant and then exactly a year later again using precaution got pregnant again and so um told my husband I got some news and when you think of something nice to say we'll talk about it so <laughs> so we and maybe maybe I could learn from that just just that right there <laughs> maybe we needed that year for him to get his heart receptive to another baby so Rena came along and what's fun is we we had bought a used mobile home when we first got married and put it on these 10 acres which was way more land than he and I ever had he grew up in Daytona in a neighborhood I grew up on air force bases so having 10 acres was wonderful for us we have a few horses and um 
And so we were going to build a house after five years. Well, we'd been in the house for in the mobile home for 12 years, so it was time. So when Rena came along, it prompted us to build a build a house. And so lots of good things. And Rena's been a delight. She graduated UF and, and as a theater and ag comm major. So she's a, a kid that straddles, you know, the theater and agriculture. And um, so three great kids. Um, fortunately for me, my husband and my children love what I do. They bundle up and go with me everywhere I go. Um, they were all involved in 4-H. They showed cattle and they ride horses. And so it's been a good um, collaboration. And I wouldn't be able to do what I do if I didn't have a family that bought into it. So a lot of tremendous support from your family. and Absolutely. And then when their interests are divergent, you take the time and share their interests. So when Rena was doing community theater, we made sure we went. When um, somebody wanted to go play soccer, we went. So there's probably things my kids did not get to do that maybe kids in town would do to a higher degree. But um, we've always been very involved with our church. So when the kids were small, especially my husband, I, I always served either in the nursery or in the children's church or in the youth ministry in some way. So we stayed plugged in and um, were able to be a part of, of their lives in that way as well. And then because of my role with Extension Youth Outreach, there's a lot of national events that uh, my kids got exposed to. And a couple times they got to go through the leaders in their 4-H club. We're going to take a quick break here to hear a word from one of our sponsors. All Florida is an authentic conservation group. They show up and speak up on behalf of the things we all care about. Woods, water, wildlife, and our way of life. We thank you for all they do for the state of Florida and for sponsoring Hurting Her Story. What do you think was one of your first challenges? Probably no different than any other woman who wants to work outside the home. Mm-hmm. Um, being a mom is super important. If you make that choice, it needs to be being a wife and mother is the most important thing in your life. That's your real legacy. But if you decide you want to pursue a career as well, some days you just have to say good enough is good enough. Um, if you raise your bar really high for everything, you know, I always joke that the S that's on my shirt does not stand for superwoman. It stands for sucker because you sometimes you forget to say no. So probably the biggest challenge for me over the years has been accepting good enough when maybe I'd like to do better. So maybe I didn't do quite as good a job as a mom or quite as good a job as a teacher or quite as good a job as a specialist. But did I check the boxes and did I get enough done that I haven't disappointed everyone? So there's going to be some times when you're going to disappoint somebody because you can't be six people. Right. Um, so you have to figure out where you can draw the line and when and how you can forgive yourself and communicate to other people. And the, the best way to overcome that need to be everything to everybody, two good things, know that you can't be everything to everybody and f- figure out where to draw the line and ask for help. And mm. it's hard to ask for help when you're a very do it yourself assertive and if you're un- unwired to be a servant and, I, and that's my love language and that's the character quality i appreciate in the others the most people that 
want to serve. Glenn Hembry was a servant leader as chairman of our department. And he's my favorite because I that character quality is important to me. So people that want to serve have a difficult time being served. So knowing when to ask for help and let others have the privilege of being a part of what you're doing because it it does them just as much good as it does you. So those are life lessons that took me a while to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a lot happier for having learned them, though. Well, that's some really great advice because I think I have a lot more time saying no and drawing boundaries and letting people help me. But oh yeah, I think it's a work in progress every day. And so I appreciate you talking about that. Well, it would it would apply to your students as well as my kids. I mean, they're my kids don't make the bed up as good as I do. I want to make it up. They may not wash the dishes and wipe the counter down the way I do, but they need the chance to do that. You have to allow people to do things at the level they're capable of, and eventually they'll get better. Mm-hmm. My students may not get something done the same way I would get it done, but they have to have the opportunity to do it and to, and to fail or to mess up and then learn from it. Because I know, by golly, I've messed up a lot of times, and my strongest memories, it's just Electric fence. The bigger the shock, the bigger the memory. Well, the forced. And some people have to learn the hard way. Well, our timing is a bit intentional with having you as our first guest on Hurting Her Story. Um, you have just been inducted as the 2023 Florida Woman of the Year in Agriculture. So congratulations. Thank you. Can you talk about what it, it means to you? Well, I, it's an honor. Obviously, it's huge. Probably the biggest thing in my career. It's also humbling. When I look at the list of women who have received this honor, I'm like, woo, I don't feel like I measure up. The weird part of it is I, because I teach and I do a lot of programs for large audiences, standing up in front of people is not a big deal. I'm always trying to convey a message or direct a program or, you know, you have this agenda in your head and you kind of share what you're supposed to share. But I've never been in a room full of people that are there to celebrate me. And that's just weird because I really don't do what I do. I don't seek the limelight. And that sounds weird when you're in the spotlight a lot doing your job. But there's a difference in being in the spotlight to do something and being in the limelight like an actor or somebody famous. I don't I don't feel famous. I feel like an ordinary girl. Well, I'd say you're far from ordinary. This is an extraordinary honor. You were inducted at the State Fair, and you did a lot of work there at the State Fair. It's got to feel like a full circle moment almost. It really does. Um, I started work at the end of October, and the following February, I was at the Florida State Fair the very first time they were in what used to be called the Charlie Likes. And so um, prior to the completion of that facility all the livestock shows were done in tents and livestock judging was intense so it was my job to put on the 4-H livestock judging and the FFA livestock judging contest so it was the first time we were in the Charlie Likes arena so that was kind of special um, I made lots of changes to the judging contest not all of them well received but sometimes there were comments about me being a woman but I was always trying to make what we do at the state events mirror what's done at the national level, like adding sheep was not a popular thing at the time, mm-hmm. leading the cattle instead of tying them to the wall. So just some different things. And then Lisa Hinton started, uh, was director of the of the agribusiness, like within the first two years of me being in Florida. And she and I hit it off 
We had uh, similar backgrounds, although she came from fully from a farm background, but she had kids and um, just a neat lady. And we, we were like peas and carrots. And between Lisa and Mr. Wakeman and myself, we worked together along with a ton of other people that were on our committees to build what started was the um, steer futurity. And it grew into what is now the champion youth program for across eight livestock shows at the fair. I think, actually, I think even before I had classes with you or whatnot, I met you at the state fair as part of the Champion of Champions. Yeah, that contest. The Champion Youth Program culminates with the Champion of Champions where they do the round robin. And you being the superstar that you are, Gina, you you made it in the top four. I can't remember which species. Was it? It was beef. Beef. So, yeah, you were one of the steer champions. And so you... We have eight different spots that you rotate between, and you were you were in the champion and champions event. Yeah, and I I mean I remembered you right that day because I it was super intimidated by you, but like in a good way. But it was both. It did, yeah, it was full part of it. Yes, and I was like, yeah, this woman does so much. And like she's just so cool. And then I got to hack you as a professor and gotten to know you over the years, and I was like, I mean, you're a big role model for me. So. That means a lot, Gina, because you're cool. You're one of the cool kids. And oh, oh, yeah. I'm really sad that you were in my class, my intro class during uh, COVID because, you know, it's not this. I want to button the chair. I want to look at your face. I want to see if you understand or not. We can explain it more. But, yeah, we got through COVID and, and we got to spend a lot of time together through Block and Bridal and Boots on the Hill and a lot of other ways. So it's that's actually the best part of my job is people like you, Gina. Oh, thank you. Well, that means a lot coming from you. Aww. Um, so what advice, I guess, would you give to young profes- professionals looking to pursue a career path like you? Advice for women is um, believe that you're good enough. Women can do anything men can do, but they may have to approach it differently. For sure. In lots of circumstances, you have to do it better than a man to get the same recognition. And don't be bitter about that. That's just, that's just the just reality. Yeah. And know that there's things we can do that they will never do. And we can do them better. We're n- natural nurturers. Mm-hmm. We can lactate. <laughs> None of the men that I work with had to lactate while they were while doing their job. So, you know, <laughs> so I, I think just be happy and proud of what you are and, Go to work every day with a positive attitude. I would say listen. Listening is probably the most important skill that that you need to develop because listening is more than half of what communication is about. And when you deal with youth programs, you deal with parents and oftentimes angry parents. Yeah. And I've learned that most of the time when someone's angry, mainly they want you, they want to be heard. Yeah. They don't even necessarily need for you to agree with them. They may say they want you to agree with them, but they mainly want to be heard. So listen and uh, use what you know and be thoughtful in your decision-making process. Um, Don't be too quick to act. Be merciful and gentle and kind. And, um, And I think when you love people, they love you back, and people recognize that. So every single person matters. The person sweeping the floor, the person clearing the dishes off the table. The person opening and closing the gate or picking up the poop out of the arena, everybody's important. And no job is too menial. Mm-hmm. Well, that is some awesome advice. I would tell you, when I 
tried to get the job at the sheep and horse unit at Clemson. There was this man named Butch Kennedy. Sadly, he passed away last year. But um, Butch was a cowboy. He knew more about horses and training horses. He's probably forgotten more about horses than most people will ever know. So Butch was a very quiet man. And when he said something, it was always significant. So I went to my interview talking 90 miles an hour because I talk too fast when I'm nervous. And I'm telling him, I said, I know the basics. I'll do whatever you tell me to. But the good news about I'm not a horse show person. I'm not trained young horses, but I'm going to do it the way you tell me to. And he and he kind of looks at me. He turns his back to me for a second. I'm almost offended. And then he turns back around and he's got a pitchfork in his hand and he holds it out and he says, does one of these fit your hand? <laughs> and I said, yes, sir, it does. He said, you know how to use it? I said, yes, sir, I do. He goes, we're going to get along just fine. But that was important. And you never educate yourself out of those kind of jobs. And I had some really good men in my life that made me feel worthy. I think a very important thing that we'd like to talk about in the future, too, is, I mean, yeah, we're here to support women and stuff like that, but the men also have to come and be willing to support us, too, in our roles and our ambition, I think. Well, we're colleagues. Whether you're man or woman, we're colleagues, and you need to work together for a common goal. And there's, um, when the gender stuff comes into it, there's there's lots of room for problems. Um, I would tell you that my job was easier once I got married. As a 29-year-old single woman, the men that I worked with, their wives were concerned about me until they met me, which I don't know if that's a secret. <laughs> once they met me, they weren't too worried. But, you know, a woman whose husband travels all the time doesn't want his husband on the road with a 29-year-old single girl. And once I got married, it wasn't as bad, but... I they, I also tried to make a point to always be respectful. I never flirted ever with any man that I worked with. What? Well, after I got married, I didn't flirt. But, um, <laughs> let's clarify. Let's make sure Tim hears it. <laughs> Thank you for having us today. We really appreciate your time. And Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share. And I am hugely honored by this um, by this title and getting my picture alongside the Joanne Smiths and the and Blounce and the Lisa Hens of the world, it's a big deal. And I I am very humbled by it but and very grateful. Well, it's well-deserved. And I would say folks like you, Gina, are my legacy. Well, thank you so much, Dr. T, for your kind words. That I mean, that really meant the world to me. And we are so glad that we got to have you as our first guest. And with that, be, be a, a lady, lady legend. legend.